Good morning, Derek Reimer. Good morning, Mr. Orenstein. How are you? I am well. How are you? Am I well or am I good? Um, I'm doing well. You're doing well. I am good? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. I'm both. <laughs> I'm positive adjectives. Someone wrote, think big on a, on a glass um, mm. wall in the office, and I was like, you mean think largely? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so we have to pour one out right now. Yeah. R.I.P. Screen Hero. Ah, devastated. And we were just singing the praises of that the other day, I think. Um, how like, how is this thing existing free in the world? And it's the best tool out there for this job. All good things must come to an end, I suppose. Yeah, I was poking around some Twitter threads and such of other people that were lamenting its demise. For those people that don't know, it's a screen sharing application, but it lets you have multiple people control the keyboard and mouse. Like you each have your own mouse cursor and you can both use keyboard input. And it just did a great job reliably of actually working and enabling pairing to work really well. Yep. And Slack bought them in 2015, end of 2015, and they shut off signups. But if you had an account, you could still invite other people. Um, and it was, they made it free. It had like paid tiers before and they just said it's free. And if you have an account, you can keep using it. And that was like almost three years ago. Um, mm-hmm. and we've been freeloading ever since. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, it was a super useful tool and reading other people's threads about them being sad. It's not here anymore or that they're shutting it down in like a month and a half. Not even, um, it doesn't seem like the cursor, like the multiple cursor screen sharing thing has been re-implemented by almost anybody. Like if you just want to share your screen, sure. If you also want to type on the same thing, maybe if you want to type and use the mouse, it's like, doesn't maybe no one else has done that shockingly. Yeah. It's really surprising. So it's one thing I understand the business rationale for this. Like it's Slack's prerogative to do this. They, you know, you could have seen this a mile away that they're planning to re-implement this in Slack. But the problem I have is like, why is this being bundled with Slack? Because I pair with many different people. I've used it for, um, you know, helping out someone on their computer back in um, California from all the way across the country. I've used it to, to pair with you before. And it doesn't make sense for us to have a paid Slack channel just for you and me so that we can pair with each other. So I don't know. The it feels like an odd decision and it's going to just really hamper the ability to, to make use of the tool. So it's a bit of a bummer. I, maybe yeah. people are aware of an alternative that can chime in when this goes live. Yeah, please do. <laughs> but if this does not exist, I'm surprised. I feel like it feels like there's an opportunity in the market then. Yeah. I saw someone touting their beta product in some of the Twitter um, conversation threads. So I can't recall the name, but maybe we'll drop it in the show notes or something and, Folks can vet it. I'll take a look at it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So pour one out. It was it was real. Thanks, Screen Hero. Yeah, thank you, Screen Hero. So yeah. Uh, in other news, uh, sales are going well. Uh, just crossed the twenty six k mark, which feels pretty good. I announced the end of the discount window. So so sales fell off a decent amount. There was a couple days where they're around five or six hundred dollars a day. And I was like, okay, it's time. So I announced that the discount is going to end uh, about a week from now, and uh, which was nice because then suddenly there was another flurry of activity, just people knowing it will end. The next day was like eighteen hundred, and the next day was twenty five hundred. So you know, email continues to work, and uh, sales incentives continue to work. It was interesting though. I I noticed there were a lot more people buying the cheaper tier in this group, 
which sort of makes sense. It's like the more price sensitive group. And I was like, I guess I guess I could see that. That's fine. But man, it is so nice having a product again. I got to say, like, just it's been a long time since I've sold a thing on the internet for myself. And it's just, it's really nice. When was the last time you did that outside of ThoughtBot, I guess? Probably pre-ThoughtBot because I had, I had a Vim for Rails developers for sale uh, when I was at ThoughtBot. And then I eventually rolled that into Upcase and we did some revenue sharing and all that. I think it's been like eight years, seven years, somewhere in there. And it's just that feeling of like, oh, hey, an email that says, you know, someone bought the team version for 300 bucks. It's like, man, that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really hard to beat the the feeling of having a product for sale that is decoupled from your time. That's the big win. It's like it's one thing if you're doing consulting or something and you're putting in time and then you're billing for your hours. But there's something really satisfying about sales rolling in while you're at the gym. <laughs> totally. And it's, it's, it's very nice with this course in particular because there's no additional work. The marginal effort for a new customer is, is effectively nothing. Um, like to date, I processed one refund and uh, one person asked for some sort of VAT help that I haven't dug into yet. But other than that, it's just like the email means money for no more work. And it's pretty awesome. And uh, so I was on the um, Ruby on Rails podcast the, the other day talking about the course and my experience building it. And that was a lot of fun uh, tweeting about that. Another great thing in my life is being a guest on podcasts. Man, that is so relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> like when someone else is already prepared with questions to make you sound interesting, it's just like, right. oh, it's the best. Yeah. Zero prep. Yep. Comes off easy. I was like, wow, I, I feel fascinating right now because this person just keeps asking me more questions about myself. <laughs> I mean, it can be painful if you're if you're in an interview where they don't have good questions to ask, but um, Yes, that's true. I get, suppose most of the time on these well established podcasts that's not the case. So Yeah. 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 Um, my first appearance on a 5x5 show, which is pretty cool on the 5x5 network now. But yeah, the questions are great. Uh, Brittany did an awesome uh, interview. She did a nice job. So uh, we can link that up if you're curious. And I also scheduled a talk at the DC uh, Ruby users group for February 16th. So getting some of that uh, that thing going. Some of that tour going. Did you see any um, sales bump after the podcast episode went live? Or was it not really discernible. Actually, that's a good question. So it there was that bump. That twenty five hundred dollar day, I believe, was the day the podcast came out, and so it's it probably had some like it kind of was also coincided with the discount ending. So yeah. it's hard to tell what was which. Yeah, was which. attribution's tricky. Yeah, but probably a little bit of both, if I had to guess. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, so things are going well. I'm sort of in an interesting place right now where there's not a ton to actively do to make things happen if I don't want to. And so I'm sort of like loosely monitoring what's going on and thinking of some ideas. And I'm trying to decide what's next for myself in a sort of big picture way. The high of a product coming out and working and like having that, that the fun part happen is definitely pushing me towards wanting to do some other thing, like a new product of some kind, or like even a V2 of this one. But it's funny, I was sitting here getting ready for the podcast and an ambulance went by and... I had the memory, I like flashed back to standing here in my apartment, waiting for the ambulance to go by so I can continue to record the screencast I'm trying to record without the audio getting messed up. And I was like, oh yeah, there was a lot of that where it was just me in here by myself, you know, frustrated and doing the, doing the, the work. 
And so like, I had this tendency when I think of new projects to be like, oh man, this will be great and it'll be easy and it'll be fun. And like, I, I focus on all the positive stuff and I, I totally discount the slog that's involved in just everything. Mm, yeah, there's a grind with anything. And, and I think one thing, you know yourself pretty well and you know that you enjoy working with other people. So I think that's something to keep in mind too when, you, when you're evaluating the next thing because whatever you choose next may not be this small in scope. Maybe it'll be a little larger in scope and then you're looking at potentially an even longer grind. And if you're solo on that, you know. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, like I have a sense of freedom right now because the course is done. And so I can go do other things if I want. And I remember like during the course development being like, man, I wish I had more options right now, but I've committed to do this thing. And so like right now I'm I'm done with my obligations. So I feel like I need to do enough self-reflection to be like, okay, what do I really want to do next? And as I've mentioned a bunch of times, I do well with structure and I do well on teams. And starting another product would be like zero structure, zero team. And so it's like, even if I could make another thing that was successful and that I liked working on, it's like still, it's like, is that the direction I want to go, given that I can go any direction right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this reminded me of one quick tangent. Um, I was listening to an episode of Seeking Wisdom podcast with David Cancel, and he interviewed Brad Stolberg, who is, I believe he's a consultant and he just authored a book called uh, Peak Performance. And it was a really interesting episode. I'd recommend listening to it if you haven't. But one of the things that he kind of talks about is that there's no such thing as true work-life balance. Like it's a fallacy that people think they want to achieve balance where they work, you know, an even like 40% of their day is spent working and 20% is spent relaxing and the other percent is spent, you know, doing this and that. And like people tend to think that that is the true balance of like always having a little bit of uh, productive time and a little bit of rest time when really people tend to operate more in the in the sense of extremes. Like we like to go all in on something that we're really jazzed about, but that's not sustainable. You can't do that forever. So you need periods of rest where you pull back. And his hypothesis is that's like the optimal way to operate. You know, otherwise you end up burning out or you, if you're too relaxed and you're not, you know, feeling good pressure and good stress from being all in on whatever you're working on, then you stagnate and you get bored. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. That definitely matches my experience. Yeah. Or at least my, my personality. Yeah. Where I get the, I get the craziness for a new project. Like I've always thought that's something you need to hold back on and like try not to allow yourself to, to fall headfirst into, you know, getting the madness as Justin Vincent calls it, <laughs> coined that term, you know, you get the madness about a project and you just want to work on it all the time. Like maybe that is a good state to be in when you're actually are jazzed about something, you, you just work on it, you know, as much as you want to, but commit to not doing that forever because that's not sustainable. Right. Yeah. Speaking of sustainable, like I feel like my current situation is not sustainable. Like if it's it's interesting and and fascinating, and I'm learning a lot, and it's it's basically working, but it feels like socially, like mentally, to me, it's not sustainable. I think I could sustain myself with product income if I needed to, but the idea of cranking out more and more solo work is like, ugh, man. Yeah. How long do I have to do this for? I also I miss software. I miss writing code. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't write and just about any code. I mean, I guess I wrote examples for the the screencast and stuff, but like that's not really writing code. Right. I'm not creating. Yeah. So you tested the hypothesis that could creating video content satisfy the same need to create as writing code and seems like probably not. Yeah, not really. Yeah. Yeah. It's satisfying too, but not in the in the same way. Like I don't get really like lost in the zone of creating video content. That never really happened. 
it was just kind of always like i have to get this done i have to get this done right so yeah but i have all these ideas and they all sound fun <laughs> so. lots to think about. it's interesting like yeah i was talking to my mom about this she's a therapist and she has a lot of clients and she says people like imagined things like like getting a job basically as being like oh man and then like i have to give up all my time and work on all this stuff and it's like yeah but like it's interesting and it's kind of fun and you're with people in practice like people often dread something like that and then they they go do it and they're like oh yeah this is this is good like humans kind of need that work and uh, interaction and uh, purpose and so i don't know in, in my mind it feels like going and getting a job feels a little bit like not quite surrender or giving up or something a little bit like that it feels a little bit like well i tried this thing and then i was like i just stopped and so it has a bit of a negative connotation in my head but i i think honestly it would be a net positive um so i don't know it's definitely on my list of things to consider i'm looking at some some places and and considering applying yeah um so yeah yeah i'd say there's there's nothing wrong with returning to salaried work i think it's something that even founders should be careful not to stigmatize because at the end of the day it is it's a form of work it's a form of your craft and whether you're doing that in the context of founding your own company or you're doing it for a company you're still you're still your own person with your own career and your own value to deliver. And whether you're delivering that in your own company or under the employment of another company, I don't think it should be stigmatized at all, you know, among founders. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I agree. Yeah. There are a lot of great things about jobs. Yeah. I didn't appreciate sure. them as much until I left mine. <laughs> right. Health insurance. It's <laughs> a lot of good stuff. <laughs> Health insurance. Yeah. It's one, just, just like, like administrative stuff too. It's like I have to administer my own health insurance and taxes and things like that. And like before, it's just all and like retirement savings and all these things just happen automatically to me. And money showing up every week isn't the worst thing ever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, that was a big I think Rob felt this sense of relief more than I did after the drip acquisition. But like one of the biggest things he talked about was like, I don't have to worry about cutting payroll anymore and administering taxes for employees that live in different states and all the nonsense that goes on with that and just all the little loose ends that you can kind of fantasize away when you're thinking about <laughs> how great it's going to be running your own company you don't think about all those things that totally. need to happen you know yep and I, I feel like this is almost a trope at this point but i just i've been feeling it in a more visceral way lately where someone tweeted something like if you really love writing software and want to do it eight hours a day don't start your own software company I, I don't write almost any code anymore. This is someone that ran a software company. And I was like, yeah, I, I knew that before. and it, But I'm really feeling it now where it's like, I love doing development and being in code and getting in the zone and all that. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. It's like, I think it depends on what you want to optimize for. So I, I, I think like the biggest, probably the biggest benefit of running your own company is having the freedom to call your own shots. And even though I found like <laughs> when I was my own boss, in essence, like I still worked pretty regular work hours and I didn't, I wasn't just like on a beach half the time because I had the freedom to do that. So it's like, it's a freedom that you get to have and you don't necessarily utilize it because you want to be working, you know, which is what you would be doing if you were an employee of another company, you'd be doing almost the same thing, right? That's a big component. And then, you know, if you have, entrepreneurial delusion that <laughs> or that kind of that reality distortion field of of looking at like the possible upside of running a company and maybe it could go big and maybe you could uh generate a large sum of wealth you know like it's unlikely to happen but it could happen and maybe that incentive of that potential outcome is enough to 
to sacrifice kind of the comfortableness of just collecting a paycheck. So I think it, I think it depends on what you're optimizing for. Yeah, I, I agree. I value the freedom a lot. Like software developers these days, that's a pretty good gig. You know, it's not like like that work is so terrible and entrepreneurship is like wonderful in comparison. At most good companies, it's just it's a it's a nice, rewarding, fairly cushy, comfortable experience working as a software developer at, at a good company these days. You have to value the freedom a lot to make it clearly better than that, I think. It's like it's a very highly evolved industry where we have We've like gotten past all the basic needs and now we're like optimizing for comfort levels of employees. And yeah, you can work remotely and you can, you know, you have all these perks because it's such a there's so much demand that, you know, companies are basically setting things up. So you you almost feel like your own boss at times, even though you're working for someone because the balance of the industry, you know. Yeah, I remember it sometimes talking to my um like coworkers at Thoughtbot and being like, so there's this thing I think we should try, like maybe try to address, but only because we have no more problems to act like no more real problems to actually complain about. Mm-hmm. Is what it felt <laughs> like. It was like I, I would like to complain about the smallest, tiniest thing right now and see if we can fix it. But just I want you to know that I'm aware that this is ridiculous. Right. Yeah, we have discussions internally that are like, how can we get better coffee on our floor of the building? You know, like, exactly. When, when you're exactly. talking about stuff like it's that. like. The cold brew keg is sometimes tastes like a little bit funky. And it's like, how do we get the lines replaced by somebody else more often? Yeah. It's like, Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Or like, sometimes we want to have beer, but we're on the sixth floor and all the beer is on the seventh floor. So like, what are we going to do? Right. We need to get our own kegerator in the fridge on six. <laughs> right. It's just, yeah. It's like, we're out of real problems, but here's what we have left. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm considering some stuff. And man, it's, it's so cool that like this, this course will continue to exist if I do get a job and like I could I have some ideas uh, still for continuing to build like flywheel type things for it that I think could you know just make it this like wonderful little steady extra trickle of income which is which will be nice yeah that's pretty cool yeah also I have a recommendation by the way um, that I've been listening to the tropical MBA podcast they have like a pretty huge audience it seems to me so probably familiar to a number of people but I had listened to it a couple of years ago and not really gotten locked in but then uh recently i was listening to it again and i really enjoyed it they have a lot of episodes where they're they're very explicit not to do like where they're like full-time employment is totally legit like we like entrepreneurship but we realize it's really hard and it's a slog and like there are big trade-offs there um and it's you know if you're not willing to put in like years and years of a grind where it's pretty brutal uh it's probably not for you and all this and i I appreciated their pragmatic stance on it particularly right now where I was like, yep, I mean, these, these are people who have done it and are successful entrepreneurs. And they're like, they're saying like, you know, like, this is not a panacea. And if it's not for you, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And I was like, hmm, okay, that's cool. Yeah, no, that's it's awesome nice to hear. It is good to hear. I mean, yeah, I feel like you at this point, we should not trust anybody who makes entrepreneurship sound like a breeze or a walk in the park. Like, then they <laughs> yeah, either yeah. they either lucked into a good situation, which happens sometimes you, you know, you start this little business and it just takes off and everything's rosy. And it's like, yeah, that's not necessarily repeatable. I mean, good for you that you struck gold, but like, that's not the norm and don't expect that to be your norm, you know? So. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So worth listening if you're looking for another podcast to add to your rotation. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. But I think that's, uh, that's it for me. I, cool. I feel, I feel updated. 
Good. <laughs> I have a quick technical update from Drip. So on the the scaling side, I think I mentioned that we were we were in the process of kind of uh, shoring up, making sure we're prepared for Black Friday. We had built up some models, like worst case scenario, kind of based on last year and based on current trends. What can we expect our worst peaks of activity to be? And by worst, I mean just highest um, volume of load. Of course, these are all just guesses, but that's all we can do is make our best educated guesses on on what may happen. And so we had some we had some basic throughput measures for for delivery sending in particular, and that's probably the the area of, of largest concern is like, are we going to be able to keep up with the number of emails that people want to send during peak hours of the day on Black Friday? Just yesterday, uh, we had been we've been tweaking a bunch of knobs and optimizing things and moving things out of our master database into S three and and doing all kinds of of things to help speed up this process and, and release bottlenecks. And we just finally cranked up the number of servers we were throwing at this process to what we feel like is our, our optimal level. And we tested it out. We got to test it out with a, a, a large send that we know goes out midday um, three times a week. And so yesterday, this this midday send went out. It sent crazy fast. Like we we blew the doors off of our, our ceiling that we wanted to cross. So... So major win. I feel so good about like all this all this time and energy we've been investing into this um, is is paying off, and that's really great to see. And I'm um, just super proud of our team. I'm just all the all the good feelings about this. So that's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. Can you share uh, details on the numbers, like how many emails you can send and what time? Yeah. So we were kind of aiming for three thousand per second um, because that Jesus. <laughs> yeah, because that's, uh, that's a lot of email. That's the published uh, rate limit from SendGrid, at least. And I'm sure, like, there's always ways to to increase that. I'm sure, but uh, we were like, all right, if we can at least get there, that is going to that's going to put us in good shape for our expected peak sending volume, and it's just going to make all the time just deliveries are just going to send faster, and the faster we can send things, the better, right? So we averaged um, a little over four thousand per second for a specific period of time when, when this large send was going out. So, so something that used to, used to kind of sit in the queues for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes and would kind of cause various backups and slowdowns and stuff kind of went out in under 10 minutes. And that was like, that was so great to see. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Someone has got a big ass list. Oh yeah. We got a few of those in drip these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So SendGrid is your uh, provider? Yes, they are. Yep. Do, do they have like one person who's just like full time, just calls you every day and says, we love you. How do we make you happier? <laughs> we do have a dedicated rep that, you know, it, it's always interesting. Like we started out, uh, started out just signing up for a SendGrid account and using it. And then the bigger you get, the more it's like, okay, now you have a dedicated account rep. Now you have a phone number for this person. Yeah. Now you have a parking space at their headquarters. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Just in case you drop by. Yep. That's awesome. Congrats. Do you have backups? Like if SendGrid went down, do you have like an f- automatic failover thing to somebody else? We used to, to do that. We had like three providers um, hooked up at one point back a couple of years ago. I mean, so we still have some of that code in the code base where like we could switch over to someone if needed. It would, But it would be pretty painful now because a lot of folks have custom sending domains wired up and that kind of ties directly into SendGrid's authentication and they issue the DKIM keys and the SPF credentials and stuff. So it would be it would be pretty difficult, but not impossible in a in the event of a catastrophe, you know? 
but they're definitely, I mean, we're at the point now where it's like, we need to have a, a pretty close business relationship with them, which we do, you know, whereas before it was like, we were, we were a small player and it's like, if, you know, Mandrill decided to just shut us off one day, we were so small that we didn't have much clout, you know? And these days, like you have a close enough relationship. I'm sure they've disabled like the auto blocking thing on our account now because, you know, Mm. you don't do that to, to your larger customers. So sure. Totally. Cool. So fingers crossed for black Friday then, huh? Yeah, I'm I'm feeling optimistic, and so at this point we're we're endeavoring to find out what other unknown unknowns do we have, and the way we're trying to get that answer is through load testing. So we're working out like cloning our production environment, and we have staging environments where we can do some of this simulated stuff in, but we're trying to take it to the next level and really simulate as close as possible to production. And then put it under load and see what our breaking points are, what our bottlenecks are, what things might go wrong in various systems. Like we have a few Redis clusters in the system and we don't expect them to fall over, but you just never know when you put it under load that the system hasn't seen before. So, so that's what we're doing right now. And, you know, hopefully that'll that'll pay dividends moving forward. Like anytime we make an infrastructure change, if we can just apply it to our load testing environment, it's going to be, you know, really great. So definitely yeah. are you gonna roll out a chaos monkey yeah <laughs> yeah i mean maybe <laughs> i think actually there's there's a, a thing i'm attending that some netflix engineers are going to be speaking at about how they do chaos testing and stuff and uh maybe get some good tidbits from that for sure yeah, for people that aren't familiar, Netflix has like a bot that runs in production that randomly kills production instances of things mm-hmm. just to make sure the whole infrastructure is resilient against failure, which I think is kind of the most baller thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure they do that. I'm sure they've done that in the load testing environment first and simulated it and then they put it in prod, you know, but yeah, I think yeah, you probably don't just deploy the the random prod killing bot like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without any f- fiddling around if you actually want to be resilient against failure in production well you know make sure that you just just yeah cause failure test it all the time continuously and then you you can just surface these errors before they become catastrophic yep i love it pretty badass let me know if you want me to just start killing things <laughs> <for you. laughs> yeah I'm, just, I'm free i got some free time right now i'll just give you our aws credentials and you can just like perfect <laughs> i only charge two thousand dollars per thing taken down Oh, it's a discount. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's way cheaper than writing your own. <laughs> Chaos Monkey as Chaos a service. Chaos Monkey as a service. <laughs> yes, exactly. Cool. Well, hey, we're at 30 minutes. You want to wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap it. Okay, cool. It's good talking to you. You too, man. Thanks for the uh, podcast-based therapy. Oh, yeah, as as always. Yeah. Cool. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com, and we'll see you next time. See ya.